Hello, time travelers, and welcome back to Biblical Time Machine. We are the world's greatest podcast that talks about the history of the Bible, if you ask me or Helen. Um, I am Dave Roos. I'm one of your hosts. I'm here with Helen Bond, professor of Christian origins at the University of Edinburgh. And today we are talking about Satan. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> and we're doing a lot of twiddling on the uh, on the time machine controls because we're moving from the beginning of time up to um, <laughs> kind of I don't know second century first late first century. We're so we're doing lot a ground. lot of moving, a yeah. lot of travel. Well, Helen, like does Satan? When you think of Satan, what do you think of? What pops into your head? I will have a very clear idea of what okay, Satan what looks like. He's got horns. It's male, definitely male. He's a guy. It's got horns um, and uh, cloven hoofs and sure. a, a little pointy tail. <laughs> yeah. What, what's your What's your mental image of? Yeah. Well, Satan? I think I mean mine. So I growing up, I didn't have. He was not part of my life, thankfully. But um, really? no. But. <laughs> From cartoons, I got it exclusively yeah, from, I don't know yeah. if it was like Tom and Jerry or something, but you have the angel on one shoulder and the little oh, devil yes, on the other shoulder, yes. and that's exactly what he looked yeah. like, pointy tail, red guy, <laughs> uh, pitchfork, of course. Definitely. You need the pitchfork to, to prod and make people. So as we are going to be talking about with our guest, you know, these ideas, these images, they do not come from the Bible. There is nothing. Well, not nothing. There are some. There are some little clues, maybe of maybe the red color here and there, of of this of how we got this idea of Satan. So as we'll see, he starts out as this kind of adversary figure who shows up in the Book of Job, and over time, and especially in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, when we have this explosion of very creative and colorful writing, biblical writings that aren't you know in the canon. That's when we get these backstories about Satan that morph into the figure that we know and and don't love. We know today as, <laughs> no as Satan or the devil or Lucifer or all these cool names we have for him. So um, let's get to our conversation. We 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 talked with T.J. Ray. T.J. is a professor of religious and theological studies at Salve Regina University. And she co-wrote a, a book uh, about 10 years ago called The Birth of Satan, Tracing the Devil's Biblical Roots. So we we love that. That sounds fascinating. Um, and, Helen, we have to thank a listener for this oh, idea, great. right? So great. We, we have some listeners. We have two to three <laughs> listeners, <have> <laughs> and two of them have emailed us. <laughs> no, lovely, we get emails listeners. from you guys, and we really appreciate it. So please keep emailing us. Uh, Daniel Klein was the one who emailed us and said, I want to know about Lucifer, uh, Satan, where, what's the history of, of, of that guy. So thank you so much, mm -hmm. Daniel. Um, we Great encourage topic. all of you to, to follow in his example and send us emails with, with your episode ideas. All you have to do is go to biblicaltimemachine.com and there is a contact button you fill in that email form, press send, and we will be anxiously awaiting your great ideas for future episodes. But for now, let's get to our conversation about the history of Satan with T.J. Ray. Well, hello, T.J. Ray, and welcome to Biblical Time Machine. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. 
Yeah, well, thanks for talking to us about Satan. Now, <laughs> Helen knows this. Our <laughs> listeners know this. I am obsessed with word origin, so I need uh, to know. Okay, go. It's not boring, Helen. This is very interesting. <laughs> I want to know... Where do we get this word Satan? I understand it's a it's a Hebrew word. So what 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 is its meaning? Original meaning? Does it have different meanings? Let us know. Yeah, it's a great catch-all word. Uh, I always mm. think of it as like kind of like aloha or shalom, you know. Mm. But uh, because it has a lot of meaning, so it begins. Uh, the word Satan begins with the lowercase s, and um, it's been translated to mean several things. It could mean a human or non-human adversary, um, uh, obstacle, opponent, hmm. stumbling block is my favorite, uh, accuser or slanderer. So in oh. the Hebrew Bible, uh, more often than not, the word is lowercase, and it has a definite article, the Hebrew word for the or ha. So it's hasatan, uh, the Satan. Yeah, and most of the time, if you're reading a translation, it will be translated to mean the adversary. Um, and that's important because it, it describes a function uh, mm. rather than a proper name. But over time, as we'll see, mm. um, the Hebrew definite article gets dropped, and then you have Satan, and it's, um, you know, it's a proper noun, and right. it will refer to the devil or the titan of evil. All right, so yeah, so we have... Like you said, a lowercase Satan, Satan means obstacle, stumbling block, and I, and as, as we'll see, that's kind of where that's most of its uses. That it, you know, there's not that many mentions of of Satan in, in the Hebrew Bible, but that's usually how it's used. And then we have that Ha Satan, the adversary, which seems to refer to a, a particular figure. Now, I'm interested in this. Like when you read the Hebrew Bible, especially you know some of those really kind of early stories, creation stories. Uh, the flood stories, you get these hints, right? You get these little hints that there are these other divine beings. You have God, but then you have his like subordinates, right? You kind of get these little angels that come down and do things every once in a while. They have to do bad things. They have to, they have to destroy people. They have to get a plague or kill an army and stuff like that. But like, there's no, they're kind of throwaway mentions, but does this, does this hint at the idea that the people who were, writing the Hebrew Bible, like in that culture that they would have believed in kind of like a whole, you know, hierarchy of, of, of divine beings with God at the top and then lots of underlings beneath. And does Satan kind of, does this, you know, Hasatan fit into one of those roles? Oh, uh, well, the short answer is yes, but mm. um, in a monotheistic system, um, and that's what we're dealing with here. Um, these underlings are, you know, they occupy minor roles. Mm -hmm. uh, the Bible refers to a divine council. You write about that. Um, and it uh, that includes God, of course, at the head. And he is surrounded by kind of a bunch of lackeys. I call them adoring footmen. And they do his bidding. Um, and mm. these lackeys or adoring footmen are uh, referred to as the B'nai Elohim in Hebrew. And that means sons of God. Mm. Um, and they're often sent on like specific miss missions, um, perhaps delivering birth announcements to mm -hmm. barren couples, or um, sometimes they serve a, a really practical function. Um, for example, Elijah, when he's stranded in the desert, uh, one of them delivers food to him. That's in 1 Kings. 
Um, and the Bible, those are kind of good messengers. The Bible mm. also mentions some evil messengers, not insofar as the messengers themselves are mm. evil, but they're, they have kind of unpleasant duties or tasks. Um, so a good example of that would be the messengers sent to investigate what's going on in Sodom in uh, Genesis 18 and 19. Mm. Um, you know, as you said, most of them are anonymous or they are described as a function like Hasatan. A few were named like Michael. And then we have, of course, mm-hmm. Gabriel, who um, he's in the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, but probably best known as the one who predicts Jesus's birth or tells Mary that she's going to have Jesus. Sure. So what about what about the text then? I mean, that where, where do we first get Satan? I mean, is it is it in the Garden of uh, Eden? Is he is he popping up there somewhere? Well, not exactly. Um, you know, the notion of the snake in the Garden of Eden um, as mm. being the satanic figure is a really common uh, misconception. But nowhere in the story does it state or imply that the serpent is a demonic figure of any kind. Hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And most certainly not Satan. That's going to take a while to, to evolve. So the author or authors of this story really doesn't have any understanding of a satanic figure or any figure really that could undermine God's will. So then, you know, where does this common misconception come from? That's the big question that um, my students often ask. Mm. Uh, So there are kind of, um, you know, three, I call them non-contenders, but if you read about this, they usually pop up. And the first one uh, is that a lot of scholars will connect it to other stories. And the most likely connection is with the Gilgamesh epic, which Mm. has a snake and it also has a plant of life. Um, the second is a first century text called Life of Adam and Eve, and that's kind of a rewriting of the Genesis account. And in that account, Eve declares the devil, you know, answered me or something mm. along those lines through the mouth of a serpent. Um, so oh, she, yeah, so, th- and that, that's yeah. from the first century. That's more in your wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, in the New Testament book of Revelation, of course, Satan is uh, at least twice referred to as an ancient serpent who mm. is called Satan and the devil. Mm. And so these are all just ideas or interpretations, but there's really no straight lines connecting any one of these uh, to the references to the snake in the Garden of Eden. I think we can draw some straight lines, however, between Satan and the snake in a much later work. And this is going to pop up probably in our conversation because it, it's really germane. And that's um, Paradise Lost by John Milton. Right. So, of course, this is written in um, it's medieval, like 1667, I think. Um, and in Paradise Lost, um, Milton casts Satan in the role of the serpent hmm. who tempts Adam and Eve to sin. So it's really interesting, you know, when I talk about biblical literacy, um, which is a favorite topic of mine, but this is a really good example of how, you know, external texts, um, you know, bleed into biblical lore. And then people who have little knowledge of the Bible, and we're talking the medieval period in this case, um, you know, we're people probably read. And of course it was illegal to own a Bible on your own at that time. Um, But, you know, so they get this information or this story, this fictional uh, story from Milton, and it kind of bleeds into the, um, the, you know, the Bible, the different stories, and people think that that's how it happened, you know? Yeah. 
No, I think if you, I, and I mean, this must be the experience with your students, but you ask 10 people, I bet 9 out of 10, if not 10 out of 10, are going to say that, yeah, Satan was in the Garden of Eden, of course. Like, he was he was the snake. So I think it's fascinating. I had to reread the text and be like, oh, yeah, it's just the, it's just the snake the whole time. <laughs> is that like, um, is he, is the snake in that sense kind of like one of these trickster characters of like ancient mythology you know, does it fit? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah um, i mean a lot's been written about that as well mm. is he a trickster character um i don't think so i mean mm. you know you have a talking animal so we're dealing with a fable here um and i think that the the ancient writer didn't assign any negative qualities to the snake other than the fact that you know i spend a lot of time in israel and the snakes there most of them are deadly poisonous mm. you know they don't like them very much um but, you know, I've always been fascinated with the fact that the snake begins up in the tree and then, you know, then falls to the ground. Mm. Um, and, and it gets and cursed to be on the ground. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. So I, I don't think it's imbued with any uh, qualities of evil per se that we tend to assign to them in later writings. So Satan, Satan kind of really gets going in the Hebrew Bible in the book of Job. Is that right? Is he... So can you say something a little bit about um, how he's depicted Right. There? Well, you know, in Job, he's not quite Satan as we know him, um, but uh, we're getting close. <laughs> um, <laughs> so as you know, poor Job is tested beyond, you know, the realm of human endurance. And, you know, this test really comes because of a lousy wager uh, mm. between God and one of those underlings we just talked about. Um, who's known as Hasatan. So that's a lowercase s in the Hebrew definite article, definitely Hasatan. Hmm. But he is, um, and I consider this him to be as well, um, you know, Satan's direct biblical ancestor. So his role is to, uh, in Job, is to test Job's piety to see if it's just based on the fact that, you know, Job is incredibly blessed, you know, he's wealthy, he's got a big family, he's healthy, Um and uh, and that's a good question, you know. Does piety hold up when you're challenged? Mm -hmm. And for a lot of people, it certainly doesn't. Job, of course, passes the test, but the text marks a significant turning point um, when we're talking about Satan, because even though Hasatan is still an underling who has no power to harm Job, that comes from God, um, he also appears as a somewhat independent figure hmm. with... A lot of chutzpah. Um, <clears throat> you know, he wastes no time uh, making wages with the Almighty and dismantling this righteous man's life. It's a really tragic story. Um, and when I read it, it leads me to kind of wonder, you know, if God is testing Job, maybe Hasatan is testing God. Mm. Okay, so that, I don't know. That's my take on it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, chutzpah is is the right word. Like he, yeah, he just kind of comes up to God and says, "I, I think if you if you you know hurt this guy or take away his family, he's gonna he's gonna turn on you and curse you." I mean, it's that's some bold speak from one of these lackeys, as you called them. So he seems to be different, yeah, than the exactly. Rest of the and if I could, um, I'd like to mention another book written around the time of Job, mm. and um, that's a book that's. Um, often overlooked, especially when we're looking at Satan. People just gloss over it. But it's a book of Zechariah. And um, <clears throat> as I said, it's written around the same time as Job. And most of Zechariah uh, centers on these uh, night visions or dreams. But the fourth vision includes an appearance um, of Hasatan. Mm. Um, and 
Zechariah's prophecies are these like, you know, densely coded apocalyptic commentaries. And it's, it's focusing on the um, restoration program underway in Jerusalem following the exile. So the author hopes that there's going to be a new kind of leadership. Um, it would be both a Davidic king and then maybe one of God's servants, a priest in particular. And I mean, that never comes to fruition, but that's kind of the backstory of what's going on. Hmm. So the setting in Zechariah 3 reminds us of the prologue of Job. It takes place in the heavenly realm. Hmm. Um, but in Zechariah, you know, the reader kind of comes into this divine council having, you know, a meeting. It turns out to be a court proceeding. Hmm. And it's already underway. And in this divine council, there's not just the heavenly beings or the B'nai Elohim. There is a human uh, in, in this heavenly realm. And his name is Joshua. And he's fresh from the exile. And he's the priest, the candidate that Zechariah puts forth in hopes that he will serve as a co-regent mm. in this new um, post-exilic uh, regime. Anyway, so Hasatan's role, we can assume, is to test and accuse Joshua. And we don't have any of the, you know, the court proceedings, what Hasatan actually says, but his kind of cross-examination seems overzealous to the point where God intervenes and rebukes him. Mm. Um, and, so, you know, so that he doesn't like the way that he's speaking to Joshua um, and he rebukes him. And so this little um, passage is really important because maybe Hasatan's gone a little too far and God has to rein him in. Mm. And, um, you know, I see this as kind of the beginnings of this cosmic battle, earthly battle that will, you know, go on between God and Satan for eternity. And it <laughs> kind of starts there in my mind. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm glad you pointed out Zechariah. So you have Job and Zechariah where you have Satan, Hasatan becoming this adversary figure, this like literally like a legal sort of adversary, a, an accuser. And they're written, both of those books, uh, and I get, I'm getting this from your your research, you say that they are written in the post-exile period, right? So we've we've talked about this in our podcast a few times that, like, this was, a lot of changes happened between, you know, pre-Babylonian exile and then when they came back from the Babylonian exile, and that a lot of the texts that we have in the Hebrew Bible were written in that post-exilic time, or maybe some of them during the, the exile. So... I think I'm fascinated and I'm interested to learn, you know, what might the, you know, the Judahites who were exiled to Babylon, what kind of cultural things might they have been exposed to? What kind of, you know, religious ideas, theological ideas might they have been exposed to that they took back with them when they returned from the exile and then might have kind of contributed to this new uh, character of of Satan of Hasatan. So, what what can you tell us about what they might have seen during the exile? Right. So, um, what I could say is that there's, you know, the exile represented quite a shift in the Jewish understanding of God, and mm. um, I think you're correct in identifying that this had a huge influence on Jewish thinking and Jewish religious practices and and monotheism. Mm. Um, and as far as some things that they might have brought back with them, um, I think that the ideas in Job um, might be the result of the exile and their exposure to what scholars often call Persian dualism. Hmm. Uh, these new ideas emerged around 600 BCE with the teachings of Zarathustra or Zoroaster, who claimed that there was only one true God, uh, creator God, who's they call him Ahura Mazda, means something like wise lord. 
Mm. Um, and um, he's like the Jewish God who is envisioned as kind of a leader of a divine council. Uh, Zarathustra taught that evil doesn't emanate from God, Hora Mazda, but it comes from a separate malignant being called Ariman or mm. Angramanu, and later Satan. So Ariman is associated with death, disease, and lies. Um, Zoroastrianism likely influenced uh, Job, Zechariah, and also the Chronicler's history, mm. um, all of which are post-exilic and all of which have a Satan figure. Um, Additionally, here's another connection. Ariman commands a gang of demonic figures hmm. who help him to lead humans astray. Um, and the uh, leader of demonic thugs, as I call them, uh, will become a stock element in the satanic stories that uh, we read. Um, there's also some interesting parallels between the plot lines of Zoroastrian and Christian narratives, such as the postmortem judgment that determines your fate after death, uh, okay. belief in a savior who will be born of a virgin and the oh, resurrection wow. of the dead. So, wait a second. So wait, you're <laughs> so Judaism and, and Christianity just like cribbed everything from Zoroastrianism. Is that the takeaway? Here? Well, I don't know if that's a takeaway, but uh, you know, they all uh, germinate in the same area and mm. um, you know, and Islam too. Um, you know, so the, these connections, uh, you know, I, I teach a world religions class, and when we get to Zoroastrianism, the jaws do begin to drop because hmm. they see these connections. Um, and so, you know, I think for our purposes, though, we need to talk a little bit about God. Um, what's God like? So yeah. the, the shift that takes place in Jewish thinking after the exile is tremendous. So before the exile... God's lackeys or uh, angelic creatures or even aspects of himself conducted the divine business, you know, mm. keeping everything in order. It's only after the exile that we find mention of a Satan figure in the Hebrew Bible. Um, and so I often talk about the emergence of Satan as being very much tied to the development of monotheism. Mm. Now, stay with me for a second. Um, <laughs> Because on the one hand, biblical religion is characterized by the proclamation that there's only one God, only one mm. God. On the other hand, there are many, many references uh, to gods other than the one mm. in the Hebrew Bible, starting with the first commandment, you shall have no gods before me. Mm. Okay, So there are other gods around. Now, how they looked at these other gods, we don't know. Uh, but they're there. And we read, for example, in the book of Judges and in other places, but this is just on, in the top of my mind, um, that the Israelites abandon God and they follow the gods of their neighbors, who are a little bit more attractive and less austere, if I'm going to be honest. Right? <laughs> so the simplest readings of these kind of texts, and there's dozens of them, is that perhaps the Israelites believe that the God of Israel uh, was not the only God. Right. So the triumph of monotheism, and it is a triumph because it evolves over a period of time. Um, so monotheism, monotheism over time kind of edges out this type of henotheism that we see uh, in the pre-exilic writings and in the Hebrew Bible. So, you know, most scholars really cannot uh, date the biblical uh, strict monotheism, one God who, who doles out pain and pleasure in equal measure. He mm -hmm. does it. He does it all. And that's dated to the period of 
the Babylonian exile. Hmm. Okay. So before the exile, just to be clear, the adoption before the exile and the adoption of strict monotheism, the misfortunes suffered in life were blamed on other gods or evil forces. But hmm. in a monotheistic system, these rival deities are essentially null and void. Second Isaiah, who is writing from the exile, roaming around these beautiful Babylonian temples, proclaims all of their religious uh, iconography, statues, it's all a sham. Hmm. The God of Israel alone is responsible for both good and evil. And this is the big problem, right? Because, you know, unable to reconcile faith in God, who's both the architect and remedy of human suffering, makes the ancient mind look for an alternative mm -hmm. for why is there evil in the world. And maybe, maybe, just maybe it doesn't come from God at all, but from another being who acts in opposition to the goodness of God. And we see this, um, this is an attractive option for a lot of Israel's neighbors. And mm -hmm. so maybe Israel's on to something. So now we kind of have Satan in our sights. Hmm. Oh, it makes, it makes perfect mm -hmm. sense. And what, what about Greek ideas then? Because as, as the centuries go on and, and, and this figure of Satan sort of develops, um, Israel's coming more and more in contact with, with Greek and Hellenism and stuff like that. So are there, are there influences coming from that area too? Oh, yeah, many. It's, it, you know, I mean, I always think of Satan as like an amalgamation of a lot of other, um, you know, religious traditions. For example, the idea of Satan being red and and kind of like dragon-like with the tail uh comes from a bayou. Oh, where where is he said to be red does he yeah. well red <laughs> is, is his red favorite color yeah we're gonna yeah in revelation <laughs> he's a red dragon hmm. bayou this uh, Canaanite underworld deity is um is red the you know the greek uh, I'm, I'm sorry the egyptian set is red so hmm. you know oh. that's it's a favorite color for evil in the hebrew bible anyway but hmm. so you know other than a few passages in Revelation, there's no physical description at all of Satan in the Bible. Um, but the, the gods, I think, from the Greek pantheon do contribute most to his post-biblical uh, images. So Hermes is the winged messenger of the heavenly court and the escort of souls to the underworld. Um, his son, in some accounts, is Pan, who's terrifying. Um, he's a hairy goat-like creature with hooves and, and horns. Right. Yeah, oh, yeah. Like his father. Yeah. And both of them are like the gods of lust too. Hmm. So the medieval mm -hmm. tradition of a winged Satan, you know, with the bat wings that you often see, um, oh, yeah. <laughs> they, they come from Hermes uh, while Pan probably contributed to the, you know, his depiction in art and literature is this hybrid monster, hmm. Satan, a hybrid monster with, you know, looks kind of human, but he's got, hooves and horns. And a yeah. tail. <laughs> uh, but I think the most um, important god is one that's really underdeveloped in the Greek pantheon. That's that's Hades. Most mm. people, the only thing mm. you know about him is that, you know, he kidnapped Persephone, and that's about it. Um, but he's, he's a cold-hearted god, and he has this special helmet that he puts on that renders him invisible. Um, and, you know, Satan also will gain the reputation of kind of lurking about unseen. Mm. Uh, it becomes kind of one of his superpowers, if you will. Um, both Hades and Satan live um, in a post-mortem place um, under the ground and the earth. Uh, it's full of fear and torment. Um, they diverge a little bit here because Hades 
you know, he stays fixed in his underground home. And for the Greeks, that symbolized the permanence of death. But Satan is not like that. Satan's very interested in the activities of humans and roving around and uh, causing misery. Um, I think one final contribution would be uh, Poseidon, who carries a trident, and that will be, um, you know, repurposed and become Satan's kind of signature pitchfork. His pitchfork, of course. (laughs) Well, no, there's so much, there's so much there. I mean, man, we could talk about that forever, but I, I want to get into this really kind of fun, I consider it a fun period. So what we call the intertestamental period. So we're all familiar with, you know, the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. But there's this like 400 years roughly between them, where it's not like everybody was sitting around not writing anything. There was like a ton of writing going on. And it was some very colorful stuff. Like you said, there were some rewritings of of the Hebrew Bible stories with some more details thrown in. And I understand that this is also where we get some of of what became like the backstory of, of Satan. So like you said, there's not almost anything in the Hebrew Bible. And then suddenly, you know, by the time we're getting to the New Testament, we have the idea of, of Satan kind of fully formed. So... What what are some of these intertestamental writings, and and what what are the kind of elements of Satan's backstory that were uh, revealed in in these creative texts? Yeah, well, I, I mean, you're right. There's thousands of texts that come to mm. us from this period, and it's it's a time, um, you know, where apocalyptic is becoming the new rage, um, and that's going to continue, of course, into the New Testament period. But, Mm. you know, I think in the interest of time, I'd like to focus on two uh, texts that really um, help us to understand the development of Satan. The first is um, one Enoch, and the other one is the Book of Jubilees, and they're written roughly around the same time period. Um, What what time period is that, roughly? So, um, we have... uh, Enoch is written, one Enoch is written around 200 to 60 BCE, you know, oh. later chapters um, are added to it. Um, and Jubilees is um, 160 to about 104 uh, okay. BCE. So, specific. Okay, cool. yeah, um, I think. Um, <laughs> uh, but anyway, both of these stories are uh, linked to the fallen angel aspect of Satan's mm. backstory. That's a really popular um story that people like to read about and think about. So, um, and they're, they're very similar. So here's kind of a brief description of some of the highlights and there are much more, but anyway, in both of these texts, the authors essentially rework a really obscure passage from Genesis. It's Genesis six, the first four verses in Genesis six, and it's a bizarre little text. And if you've read it, you, probably forgot it, but I'll remind you. It's it's a story in which the B'nai Elohim fall to fall from the heavenly realm and they go to earth and they mate with human women. Mm-hmm. And their offspring are heroes and legendary warriors. All right. There's also a mention of the Nephilim, but the connection's not very clear. Hmm. All right. So in the revised versions of this story that's found in One Enoch and Jubilees, the B'nai Elohim, now they're called the Watchers, oh. they kind of go rogue. So they fall to earth, they have sexual intercourse with human women, but their children are a race of giants that we call the Nephilim, oh. who in turn bring forth voracious monsters 
and these monsters devour everything in sight, including people. Mm. In both texts, rebel leaders emerge to kind of manage the watchers. In Enoch, it's a character called Azazel in Hebrew, which just means strong God. Mm-hmm. And in Jubilees, it's a really uh, famous uh, name that's connected to Satan throughout the intertestamental period and beyond. It's, and it's Mastema. And Mastema in Hebrew means like um, hateful or hateful one. Uh-huh. All right. So, um, but, you know, in later material in both texts, both of these um, characters, Azazel and Mastema, will be called Satan. Oh. Um, yeah. So, you know, um, well, wait, see, yeah, let's 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 clarify that, because I think this is this is fascinating. Again, we, we think of of Satan as a fallen angel that that is as part of our ideas of who he is. And you're saying in these these first Enoch and, and Jubilees that he's not called Satan, but there is a figure as uh, some kind of like they call them the watchers or some sort of angelic type creature uh, figures that come down. And then they, like you said, they they start wreaking havoc. So and then then they have like a leader who's called right. Mastema, and then that leader becomes called Satan in later like intertestamental texts. No, it's well, it's in the same time period. But okay. by the time the final chapters are written, um, and now we're getting more into the first century, mm. the name Satan becomes the popular designation for these oh, okay. characters, and they kind of all coalesces and. These other names, these alternative names, they do hang around. They reappear in different mm. texts. Um, but by you know, by the time we get to the first century, they know that the, you know this is the devil and he's Satan or Lucifer. All these names start circling around him. But um, and the and the actions of these Watcher angels, which were formerly the Bene Elohim, we can observe a couple of things that is a little frightening. Um, first of all, there are several steps removed from God. They act on their own. They, yeah. they don't follow the divine orders like the B'nai Elohim and Zechariah or Job. Mm. Um, and then there's this revisionist writing that goes on. And we see this with the chronicler's history as well. And I could circle back to that in a second. But um, so the, the, they change, um, you know, the stories. That, that we've come to know in the Hebrew Bible. So, for example, in Jubilees, the author cites Mastema as the one who orders Abraham to slay Isaac. Oh. And it's Mastema who orders the death of the firstborn in uh, the Passover oh. tale, and Mastema who tries to kill um, Moses. Wow. So, <laughs> Clever maneuver. Yeah. And so the, the, the chronicler does this too. So, you know, there's a story about David taking a census, which is forbidden in the Torah. And God gets really mad, and he sends a plague, and he kills 70,000 people. Oh. He's really mad. <laughs> um, but it's God who incited him to do it, right? So it's very perplexing. So when the chronicler starts writing about the same story, now the chronicler, of course, is writing the post-exilic period, he wants to free God uh, from being the big meanie in this, and he assigns Satan as the one who incites David wow. to take the census. So he's rewriting history there. And I mean, I, only because I've I've read what you've written about this, that's like a big moment because isn't it in the text? He's not Hasatan, you know, lowercase. Like this is capital S Satan. Like that's his name, right? At this yeah. Point. Yeah, okay. and that's like the first time that you have Satan as this, you know, as you said, without the Hebrew definite article, standing alone wow. in the Hebrew Bible and doing this. So that's significant. And all of those texts, as we said, you know, 
uh, Job, Zechariah, uh, the Chronicle, they're post-exilic. So you're right. A lot happened during the post-exilic wow. period or the exilic period. And what about the Dead Sea Scrolls, these um, Essenes, if that's what they were, these, these people by the Dead Sea? Did, did, do they have an idea about Satan too? Because they, have, they seem to have ideas on most things. Oh, they, they do. <laughs> they have, yeah. <laughs> and they've got this very sort of idea of, you know, everything's good, everything's bad, right. sons of light, sons of darkness. So, so does, does Satan kind of slot into that in some way? Yeah, actually he does. So the, you're right, the... the Essenes are the presumed authors of the Qumran literature. I think they definitely wrote it, but, you know, there's some mm-hmm. scholars that would debate that. Um, and they did. They referred to themselves as the sons of light and everybody else, which was the vast majority of people who disagree with their orthodoxy, <laughs> they were the sons of darkness. Um, you know, we just see these these themes repeating throughout uh, all of history. But, you know, if you don't agree with me, you're the son of mm-hmm. darkness. Um in any case, the Essenes viewed the Roman occupation of Palestine, which was underway and was a horrifying situation, to be sure. But they saw that, and and the accommodation of many Jews to that occupation, including uh, people in the temple, which I call them the temple elite, and we're talking about, you know, the the temple functionaries. Mm. Um, they aligned themselves with it, or at least accommodated the Romans. Um, and the Essenes looked at that as proof that Satan had already infiltrated the ranks of God's chosen people and that a cosmic battle, which they believed was in the offing, but they thought that was already underway with this action, this accommodation hmm. of the Romans. And this was a, an apocalyptic event that they saw starting to happen before their very eyes. And, you know, of course, they withdrew to the desert because you know, as you said, Helen, no one really agreed with them except themselves. And um, they were living, you know, this waiting uh, for this apocalyptic uh, event in which um, God and his army would sweep away all the sons of darkness, all the all, everyone who disagreed with them, along with Israel's foreign oppressors, the Romans, and usher in a, this new world of... Um, you know, that would be free of suffering and death, which is at the core of the apocalyptic uh, notion. Yeah, I mean, that's just like, that's the blueprint for apocalyptic writing. Now, but you, so you're saying they were using the, the name Satan. Like they were saying Satan has infiltrated, Satan has is, is kind of bringing in these outside forces. Like that's, they were using that kind of language? Yeah, because, you know, we're in the first century or near to it and overlapping it. Mm. And so, yeah, Satan is like, you know, the moniker that they're going to use. Wow. So, okay. So then if that's in the first century, now we've, we've caught up to Helen, uh, Helen's, Helen's time. We've caught up to new Testament times. <laughs> My bad. The, you know, we, we probably don't have time to get into all of it, but this kind of give me a paint a picture of, of by the time, uh, the authors of the new Testament are writing, which is, you know, for end of the first century into the second century, like, what were their assumptions about this character of Satan, and how do we see those assumptions playing out in some of the more well-known New Testament encounters with Satan? Right. Well, you know, of course, this is a, a really fractious time um, that we're talking about, especially the first century. You know, there's mm. political, social, cultural, religious changes uh, happening among the Jewish people. Um, but Satan is now fully formed, and he is a villain, and he's pretty horrifying but Mm. that being said he is also a concept a way of defining your enemies um Mm. 
such as those opposing factions in Judaism, uh, foreign rulers, um, and also the enemy within. Um, so these various representations of Satan eventually coalesce, and then we have the Satan of the New Testament and beyond. So in my mind, anyway, as a, apocalyptic literature grows in popularity, so does Satan. The mm. belief that the people were living in the end of days, like the Essenes and most people, um, during this time, gives birth to this messianic expectation and sets the stage for the final showdown between, you know, uh, Revelation is Jesus and Satan, but good and evil, let's be generic there. Sure. So the Satan of the New Testament is more confident, more powerful. He acts independently. Um, he challenges Jesus's authority, and mm. he even infiltrates the ranks of those close to Jesus. But before I go into, I'm going to give a few examples. I, I want to point out that, you know, we have a hero story here, and Jesus is a hero, and the villain is Satan. And Satan is never allowed um, in, in the New Testament, um, especially in the Synoptics, to move about the world unopposed. Jesus, you know, will step forward to confront the villain. Mm -hmm. And I think this is one of the most beautiful aspects of the Satan tales, whatever you're talking about, is that, you know, when, um, you know, evil is present, eventually a hero, and sometimes it's not the one we expect, will step forward to confront um, the, the, the villain. Okay, so in the synoptics, we first encounter Satan as he tempts Jesus in the wilderness, just before uh, Jesus starts his, his earthly ministry. Mm. And it's important to note that Satan approaches Jesus when he's been fasting for 40 days and nights. So Jesus is weak from his 40-day fast, and this becomes a signature move of Satan, tempting mm. humans when they're weak and vulnerable. Mm. Um, all three temptations come from a place of lack, food, power, worldly recognition. And of course, Jesus is unconcerned with any of these things. And in Matthew, he just banishes Satan. But Luke's version ends on a much more ominous note. He says, you know, when the devil had finished, you know, tempting Jesus, he departs until an opportune time. Mm. Uh, yikes. Um, so in Luke and John, that opportune, opportune time, of course, is when Satan enters Judas. And this is mm. a frightening development because now Satan can enter into people and control them. Mm. And that's pretty horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there are others. Should I talk about the story, uh, the get behind me, Satan? That's pretty uh, popular. Yeah, I like, students. yeah. Yeah, let's talk about that one. Okay, so in the synoptics also, there's a turning point really in Jesus's ministry. And it takes place at Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus is asking his disciples various questions. Who do people think I am? What's going mm -hmm. on? Whatever. And then he narrows it. And he says, well, who do you think I am? And Peter, who speaks for everybody, says, well, you're the Messiah. And that's lovely. But then everything takes a really bad turn um, when Jesus tells them that moving forward, his mission is going to include his passion and death. Mm. And in both Matthew and, and Mark, a confused Peter kind of rebukes Jesus, basically saying, say it ain't so, Lord. Uh, that's not <laughs> supposed to end that way, you know. Um, and then Jesus rebukes Peter, saying, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling mm. block, you know, to me. Um, so here we have Jesus using Satan with the lowercase s in a generic mm. sense to mean that Peter's an obstacle. He's an impediment to Jesus's journey to Jerusalem and his ultimate fate. And I mentioned this because 
you know, this is a good illustration of the Satan language of the Bible. Um, it can be referring directly to the devil, while at other times it's clearly metaphorical. But I'd like to just circle back for a minute because I've spent a lot of time at Banyas, which is the name of Caesarea Philippi today. Um, and, um, you know, I think it's important to talk about where this is taking place. So, hmm. you know, Caesarea Philippi, or Banyas, is located in the Golan Heights. It's at the foot of Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon is the traditional location where the B'nai Elohim and later the Watchers fall to earth oh. in Genesis 6 and 1 Enoch, respectively. There's also a connection to the Nephilim in that area. And then hmm. later, that whole area was dedicated to the Greek god Pan. There's all kinds of niches and there's been inscriptions that have been found there. So Jesus and the Twelve were likely inside or very near to a cave called the Gates of Hell. Because in antiquity, the Greeks believed that gods, the gods of the underworld, could move from the underworld to the surface of the earth through hell holes or little mm. vents in the earth. So I've lived in some of those places. By yeah. but yeah. <laughs> I think we all have. I'm yeah. thinking about my college days. Mm. Um, but I think that, you know, thinking about where this took place may have influenced Jesus's use of the word Satan or mm. Satan. So, wow. Wow. Yeah, I never heard of, that's never really heard of interesting. that. Yeah. Can I ask you about another name for Satan that my students are always asking about and I never have any information to tell them. So I'm hoping um, that you, you can help us out here. But Beelzebub, where does that come from? And, um, you know, is that just another name for Satan? Uh, yeah, well, Satan has a lot of names. Um, yeah. uh, so Beelzebub, um, or uh, sometimes it's called Beelzebul, um, but Beelzebub yeah. in the Synoptic Gospels, and he's... Um, known as the Prince of Demons um, in the Synoptics, and he's credited with causing wars and tyranny and violence. Um, he's often associated with the Philistine city of Ekron, and it actually means Lord of the Flies. It, and it may be connected to the Canaanite deity Baal um, and a corruption of the term Prince Baal, you know, so. But that's, so you're saying that reference is probably not to Satan. This to the to to some other kind of evil. Right, God. but it's okay. a despic it's a disgusting uh, term, and so hmm. all these gross terms like mastema, um, belial, which means worthless, um, hmm. begin to become alternative names for Satan. Azael. Um, there's a you know a demon in the Book of Tobit, uh, which is in the canon of the Catholic um, Bible, but in the Apocrypha in Protestants and. You know, he also appears um, in, in in the Talmud, and and he's one of the demons of the Malus Maleficarium, which is a witch-hunting text used in the medieval period, but um, he becomes a name. You know, so he has, you know, dozens of alternative names that are um, attached to him. Well, wait, what was the, what was that demon's name? The, the, it's Asmodei is his name. Asmodee. Yeah, okay. the one that's in the Talmud and in the Book of Tobit. Huh. Um, and well, so and and Lucifer, where does that come from? Well, Lucifer is um, it means light bearer, and um, it you know it comes from a couple of sources, um, but the most common source is that um, there's a couple of intertestamental texts where Satan, uh, where um, you know the B'nai Elohim fall to earth and. And, and all that. But in the Bible, in, um, there's a passage in Ezekiel and also in Isaiah 
Um, there is a kind of a um, discussion about um, uh, the, a king of Babylon and a king of Tyre. And uh, it's kind of a taunting uh, passage where they're making fun of them. And they're using vestiges from a Canaanite myth, which we, we don't have, but we've kind of pieced it together, in which they refer to the day star. And um, so he's, you know, that's where the light bearer is connected very loosely with that idea. So these kings who are, um, you know, um, enemies of the uh, Israelites, he's, mm. they, they're going to fall to earth in the way yeah. that, um, you know, the day star crashed to earth. So they're going to crash and burn. So that's kind of the loose connection there. Um, huh. And then that, that word Lucifer, is that so that's like a Greek or something for yeah, it's the Greek translation of day star. So it means light bearer and it become, you know, he, Lucifer also is the protagonist in uh, paradise lost. So that's mm. why it has stuck around for a long time. It probably oh, would have yeah. faded into history, but um, you know, he repurposes a lot of names like Molak and other names like that for his lieutenants and things in paradise lost. Uh, all right. Milton. Thank you. That's yeah. it. Milton is beyond our, our biblical purview, but that's yeah. very important to, uh, to, <laughs> to recognize. All right. But okay, sticking with biblical texts and, and we, we can't discuss Satan without doing revelation. Things get crazy in revelation, but we, we get a different vision of Satan as you call him a chaos monster. What's a chaos monster? A chaos monster um, is a particular type of monster and they're usually a, um, a hybrid um, so, you know, they are, you know, they'll have like attributes of an animal. Um, they might have a human face, for example. So Satan often is like half human and, um, you know, half monster. Uh, mm. But they, the function of a chaos monster is to cause problems, wreak havoc, cause mayhem, um, and terrify humans. Now, there are other chaos monsters, many of them in the Bible, um, like Leviathan and Behemoth, mm. and I just mentioned Molech. Um, but, you know, we're, we're, we're out of the realm now of Hasatan in, in Revelation, mm. and Satan is a terrifying, fully formed monster. Mm. Um, this really kind of brings us to the heart of what Satan's really all about, and that's fear. You know, when mm. I teach my Satan seminar course, I always begin with fear, because it's really the fear of Satan um, that is responsible for keeping him alive and well for over two millennia. People are mm. terrified of this character. I wrote my dissertation on this character because I was terrified of him as a child. Mm. And um, I wanted to you know, get out of my comfort zone. Mm. Um, so in Revelation, beginning in around Revelation 12, there's a heavenly drama um, unfolding, and there's a pregnant woman. Um, and she's in active labor. And Satan uh, appears as a red dragon who hovers over this woman hmm. intent on eating her child. I mean, it's just horrifying. Um, you know, and as we mentioned, red will become his signature uh, color. Uh, the child is saved and taken away before it's eaten, and the woman flees and is protected as well. But in the next chapter, um, chapter 13 of Revelation, the power of Satan is now symbolized in two hideous monsters. One comes out of the sea and is described as having ten horns and seven heads. Hmm. And one of those heads has a, a wound on it uh, that is healed. And that beast is intended to symbolize Rome. And more specifically, the wounded head 
likely refers to the Emperor Nero, who was mm. the first to um, first emperor to actively persecute Christians. And as you'll recall, he committed suicide. Um, that happened decades before Revelation was written. Um, mm. He stabbed himself in the throat, not the head. But um, a lot of scholars think that this is, you know, an attempt of John of Patmos, the author, to connect this beast to Nero in some way. Sure. And, you know, there, there were rumors circulating even at the time that Revelation was written that Nero actually didn't die that, or that he came back to life. So mm. maybe that's, that's true. All right, the second beast emerges, this time from the earth. And this beast is identified by the number 666. Mm -hmm. And scholars are all over the place when they talk about this. Some view the number 666, and I have to say I'm in this camp, as a number in opposition to the sevens in Revelation. So Revelation mm -hmm. uses the number seven, the number for biblical perfection, over and over again. Sure. Uh, you know, the... John is addressing the seven churches. Uh, there are seven scrolls. There are seven seals. Mm -hmm. um, so seven is the number of perfection, and maybe 666 is meant to be triply imperfect. Right? Mm. Others view the number 666 as a reference to the Emperor Nero. So we're going back to him again. Um, oh, yeah. So, you know, in Greek and Hebrew, the numbers correspond to letters of the alphabet, and the Hebrew letters for the name... Um, for Caesar, near, uh, near on Caesar, actually, add up to 666. In any case, the number 666 is eventually uh, associated with Satan, like many of the other names sure. that we've talked about. And that becomes, you know, uh, an alternative name for him. <laughs> so, you know, the re re you know, the repeated use of beasts, multiple horns and heads are probably mm. allusions to Rome, you know, possibly the seven hills of Rome, and the ten horns might represent the Roman emperors up until the time of the composition of Revelation. Um, and then the end of the text, Satan is defeated in a final battle between Christ, who's called the Lamb in Revelation, and Satan, who's called the Beast. And Satan is first bound for a thousand years, and then he reemerges only to be tossed into a lake of fire and um, tortured for all eternity. So I think the ending is really instructive in Revelation um, because, you know, one of the great lessons I think it teaches initially is that, you know, evil can't be eradicated. It just keeps coming back. You know, mm. you get rid of one, you know, evil world leader and another one comes up, for example. Mm. Um, but there is always someone, as I said, that there's always someone who will say, I I'll do it. I'll, I'll, I'll take on this, this evil. And the other thing, I, I want to point out, I think is the most worrious, worrisome aspect of Revelation, and I'm very cautious when I teach this text in, uh, to undergraduates. And that is that a lot of times I think re readers fail to understand that apocalyptic, and this is a full-blown apocalypse, is a literature of crisis. And it's addressing a crisis specifically um, of John of Patmos's day, not ours. Mm. And I think it's a dangerous precedent when people read this literature and they try to extrapolate these bizarre symbols and characters, which were very well known in antiquity, but, you know, obviously not known very well today. Um, and so I think it's, you know, it's really prudent to situate it in the, the, you know, what was going on in the first century and what John envisioned might happen um, with 
you know the further persecution of Christians. So. Yeah. Well, uh, well. Good. Good luck with that. Good luck uh, <laughs> convincing people not to read into the Book of Revelation. Um, yeah. There's, uh, there's yeah. a couple people who do. But um. All right. Well, this this has been a fascinating conversation. I hope our listeners have been able to to track the evolution, the, the metamorphosis, the creation of a figure that at the end encompasses all evil forces in the world and how it it started as. You know, a word in the Hebrew Bible meaning, you know, an, an adversary, an obstacle. It's it's fascinating. And it's uh, it shows how the intermingling of these different ancient cultures kind of gave new ideas that, that, that bore fruit in, in different types of literature. I love it. Thank you so much, Tina. Thank you so much to our listener, Daniel Klein, who recommended this topic. And uh, thank you, Helen. And we will see all of you next time on Biblical Time Machine. Bye.